Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of what, the African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabitha Luhoko and Figile Lungwati. In our top stories, Human Rights Watch says armed groups targeting civilians in the Central African Republic have killed at least 45 people. Many of the African continent's economies are expanding, but that's all, not always leading to more jobs. And South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has five working days to respond to the High Court judgment on the cabinet reshuffle. In economics news, the French banking giant Societe Generale has agreed to pay 1.1 billion US dollars to settle a legal dispute with the Libyan Investment Authority. And in sports news, Stuart Baxter is the new Bafana Bafana coach. First up, the news with Ben Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Russia, Turkey and Iran have signed an agreement to establish four safe zones in Syria on the second day of peace negotiations in Kazakhstan. Representatives of the Syrian armed opposition walked out of the talks, saying they could not accept the plan. The BBC's Yusuf Tahir reports. When Kazakhstan's foreign minister, Kairat Abrahmanov, asked the participants to sign the escalation plan, representatives of the Syrian armed opposition angrily shouted that they did not accept it and walked out. They had come back to the table after walking out on the opening day, demanding that the Syrian government stop bombing rebel-held areas. Under the plan, Syrian and Russian warplanes would stop their bombing, opposition groups would halt attacks. Mr. Abdrahmanov said that the next round of talks would be held in Astana in mid-July. The leader of South Africa's opposition DA party, Musi Maimani, has described the ruling by the High Court in Pretoria that President Jacob Zuma must explain his axing of former Finance Minister Praveen Gordon and other cabinet ministers as a victory for all South Africans. The court has given Zuma five days in which to give the reasons. He had initially cited the so-called intelligence report as the reason for axing Gordon. The report claimed Gordon had sought to undermine Zuma's administration while on an investment trip to the United Kingdom. The DA's James Self explains. We are very encouraged by the fact that we do not believe that there are any uh, rational reasons. And if there are no rational reasons for, for the dropping of Mr. Gordon, then we strongly believe uh, that that uh, uh, decision would be illegal and unconstitutional. Meanwhile, South Africa's ruling ANC has called the judgment a dangerous precedent. The party spokesperson Zizikotwa says the court's ruling has disregarded the separation of powers between the judiciary, executive and legislative arms of government. It has got all the elements of judicial overreach. It borders on judicial overreach. 
It's important that all three arms of state must respect one another's functions, uh, role and functions and responsibility. Our hope is that the president will appeal this ruling because in future it would affect not just the firing of ministers or reshuffling, but also the appointment. The South Sudanese government has been urged to halt any further offensives towards the town of Aburok, where more than 35,000 people have sought refuge in recent weeks due to fighting. The call comes from United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Ziad Rahad al-Hussein, who says up to 50,000 people had made terrifying journeys to the town in the Upper Nile region, mainly on foot. Human Rights Office spokesperson Ravina Shamdasani. The UN mission in South Sudan has not been granted access to Abu Ruch. Uh, we have been told to go in at our own peril, essentially, um, and humanitarian actors have had to withdraw uh, because of this imminent threat of grave violence. So the people there are really facing grave shortages uh, of medicine, food and water, in addition to having made really these perilous journeys to get where they are. And finally, a Moroccan cargo vessel has been detained in South Africa following a complaint by Western Sahara that transportation of goods from its disputed territory was illegal. The 34,000-ton vessel laden with phosphate from Western Sahara and destined for New Zealand was blocked from sailing off on Monday following a court application seeking that the vessel return its cargo. Morocco and the Palazzario fought for control of Western Sahara from 1974 to 1991. The United Nations last week set its sights on restarting political talks between Morocco and the Algeria-backed Polisario on settling the decades-old conflict. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And Human Rights Watch says armed groups targeting civilians in the Central African Republic have killed at least 45 people and displaced 11,000 in the past three months. The rights group said on Tuesday that two factions are vying for control of the central part of the country. It says one predominantly pure faction of the mostly Muslim Seleka group has been fighting since late 2016 with another faction that has aligned itself with the Christian anti-Balaka group. The latest fighting began in February when anti-Balaka fighters killed a group of Puel civilians. The Central African Republic descended into sectarian conflict in 2013. More from Louis Mudge, Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, specifically focusing on the Central African Republic. So as you mentioned, it's, it's been a year since the election, and there is a legitimate government in the Central African Republic, but they really only control the capital, Bangui, and parts of the southwest of the country. Right now, as we speak, in the center and east of the country, We're talking about a vast territory that's still more or less controlled by armed groups. Many of these groups are former Seleka groups. And if you remember, the Seleka 
was a rebel coalition that actually took power in a coup d'etat in 2013. And there was actually some fierce fighting in which South African troops were involved. The Seleka have now fractured into several different groups, and they control vast territory in the center and east. Now, what has happened since November 2016 is we have seen a new dynamic. We've seen these Seleka groups who used to be allies they started to turn on each other. And the main reason that they're turning on each other is to fight for control to access to some of the lucrative mines in the center of the country, in particular gold mines. And this fighting has escalated to a point where they are now targeting civilians. And this was the most recent report that we did, research that I conducted just a few weeks ago in the center of the country, in which we've documented crimes committed by both sides. So these are two Seleka groups, one known as the UPC and one known as the FPRC. And they're deliberately targeting civilians in their attacks. And not only is this a serious breach of international human rights law, these are potentially war crimes. But now, one wonders, you know, apart from the government, the UN has deployed peacekeeping forces to the Central African Republic, and yet the attacks, like you say, between the Christian anti-Balaka and Muslim Seleka, and like you say, the Seleka who are now turning against each other, these attacks and the violence continues. What does this mean about the peacekeeping forces? Are they somehow lacking somewhere that they are unable to stop or at least reduce this violence that is persisting? Well, the short answer yes. But it's more complicated than that. The UN peacekeeping force has about approximately 12,800 forces. And that sounds like a very big number. And indeed, it's one of the larger UN peacekeeping forces in the world. But we have to remember this force took over in September 2014 when the conflict was really still quite, quite serious across the country, including in Bangui. This is a force that's in a country the size of France. So it's a massive land area. And this is a country that, as I'm sure you can imagine, has some of the weakest infrastructure on the continent. So it's a force that really is stymied in its ability to get from from A to B, to get into the villages and off the main roads where a lot of this violence is occurring. They rely a lot on air power and air support, and frankly, there's just not enough helicopters in the mission to make it as effective as it could be. Having said that, and noting uh, the real deficits in MINUSCA, this UN peacekeeping mission. I can also say that, honestly, I think without this mission on the ground, we would have seen the Central African Republic turn into a type of Somalia type of situation in which it would have become completely lawless. There were elections last year. They were free and fair. There's a legitimate government, and that's something to be heralded. The capital, where the international airport is and where business of running the government is conducted, is more or less secure. The western part of the country, with the exception of the northwest, is more or less secure. And parts of the center-west are broadly secure. So the UN has been critical in establishing some degree of stability since September 2014 when they took over. They still have a vast amount of work to do. And this work has only increased with the recent announcement by United States and Ugandan forces that they're going to pull out of the southeast of the country. They had been there since 2011 to fight the Lord's Resistance Army that are firmly entrenched in the southeast. And those forces will be leaving. So the UN mission still has quite a lot of work to do.
Now, the Central African Republic has never really been stable since their independence from France in the 1960s. And now you're talking that Uganda has said that they are withdrawing the forces in the Central African Republic that were looking for Joseph Kony because they say that he is no longer a threat to Uganda. But now, isn't this going to make the situation even more vulnerable? What can be done now to stabilize the situation? Well, that's a really good question. It's something that we're doing a lot of advocacy on at the moment. I mean, we are going to see a security vacuum in the two critical regions in terms of LRA activity, the Mbomo and the Ho-Mbomo provinces. These are huge provinces, a lot of jungle and bush, perfect places for the LRA to hide out. And we're going to see a major security vacuum when the Ugandans and the Americans leave. The onus is going to fall in the short term on the UN mission to fill that void. The national government simply does not have state security forces, both of sufficient numbers and of sufficient training, to have any real meaningful impact. So we are calling on the UN to increase logistic supplies to the mission. And we're also calling on the UN Security Council to consider raising the troop ceiling. Frankly, I think there need to be more UN troops in the southeast of the country because there has been a lot of progress made on reducing the capacity of the Lord's Resistance Army and Joseph Kony. And it would be a real shame if in the security vacuum, the LRA was in a position to reconstitute itself. That was Louis Mudge, Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to Jose Khodinake. They are referred to as intersex children born with both male and female organs, and they can often find themselves struggling to fit into society. In Kenya, they face stigma and discrimination, and in some cases, death, because they are seen as a bad omen and killed at birth. The BBC's Anne Soy was speaking to Darlin Ruki, who was hidden as a child and now defends the rights of other intersex people. Some listeners might find parts of this story disturbing. The boys are playing football yeah. and the girls on the side are playing a local game called Kati. Oh, I miss Kati. Yeah. When you were growing up, that would have been difficult for you. Because the girls are playing on one side and the boys on the other side, it would be difficult for you to Yeah, choose. yeah, yeah. It was, it was very, very difficult. I met Dallan Rookie at a home he's built for orphans and elderly widows in Diwa, Western Kenya. Everyone here seems to love him, even adore him. But it wasn't always this way for him. Dallan isn't the typical man or woman. I was born an intersex. I'm a man and I'm a woman, and I'm proud of both. His mother brought him up as a boy and was very protective of him. I'd walk with him every time. When he was going to school, I'd go with him. I would not even allow him to go take a bath with his peers at the lake. I prepared a safe place at home where he could take his bath. I thought that I was a boy because that was the mind I had. But physical changes, it comes in the Around adolescence. Uh, adolescent stage. I started uh, experiencing menstruation period. Then my mom took me to the store and uh, the doctor says to me and told me, you know, you have both two organs. The woman in you is more powerful than the man in you. Determined to help Dallin lead a normal life, his mother got him hormonal suppressants and later a wife. 
but his life wasn't easy. Nobody would associate with me. I was just sometimes walking in the bush, not even by the roads, fearing people to see and to look at me. Some people attacked me, some people wanted to take out my clothes just to see how I was created. I was just like abomination to anybody, so it was very, very painful to me. I thought of even killing myself. I didn't have anybody to share my problem, only my mom, because my mom was a religious woman. She used to encourage me that it was God who did that. It was not a mistake, so I'm not a mistake. That was the second time his mother saved his life. The first was at birth. In his community, the Luo, children born with abnormalities like ambiguous genitalia would be killed at birth. That's what they called the dreadful practice. I met a group of traditional birth attendants from Dalan's community. Nowadays, the law bars them from delivering babies at home. But they explained what their predecessors did. If a woman delivered an intersex baby, the birth attendant would take a sweet potato and break it on the baby's head once and the baby dies. There is a joy in my heart that no one cannot give, but it comes from the Lord, my life to him I give. At 42, Dallan is lucky he escaped such brutality. He is now a renowned gospel singer in Western Kenya, and his ever-protective mother is still by his side. I am very happy because God has made him prosperous. I am also happy because he's helping a lot of people. If somebody had advised me to kill him, now who would be helping these people? Dallan now projects his voice in support of people like him. I would like the government to give a space for an intersex. Because I, I accept and I agree that there are female and male in this world. And again, there are intersex and hermaphrodites, so they should be given their gender and be defined as a gender in the constitution and to get to create a law and by laws which protects them. This call is gaining traction across Kenya as more and more intersex people come out and demand for recognition and protection. And that report by the BBC's Anne Soy. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to, far to West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, the United Nations Children's Fund says a projected number of children who are acutely malnourished in Somalia has shot up by 50% since the beginning of this year. The drought in the country has also forced some 40,000 children to stop attending classes as the most vulnerable families enlist children to search for water and food. Severely malnourished children are nine times more likely to die. More from Susanna Price, Chief of Communications at the United Nations Children's Fund. To do our planning, we have to look at the number of children we think will be malnourished throughout the whole year to ensure we bring in that very important supplies of therapeutic feeding and to make sure we have the wards available and all these uh, essential supplies. As more and more children are coming into our nutrition centers and the figures are going up, we realize that we have to increase that estimate. So now we we think that maybe 1.4 million children will be malnourished during the whole year. And that includes, most worryingly, 275,000 children who have life-threatening severe malnutrition. So they are, are so severely malnourished, they're up to nine times more likely to die of certain diseases. They're extremely weak, and they need instant help. And so these are the, the children we at UNICEF target the most severely malnourished. Other agencies, including the World Food Program, look at children who are moderately malnourished. So we are extremely concerned uh, and we are doing all we can to make sure that treatment for these children uh, is at hand and is at hand quickly. Do At this point, do we have the numbers, uh, perhaps just stats on the number of children so far who have died due to um, acute malnutrition in Somalia? We don't have the numbers. Usually we would say maybe 1% of those who we treat uh, may not respond or, or may, may die. So far we've treated over 56,000 children with severe malnutrition this year and they make an incredibly good recovery. If they come in time, if they're identified by mobile teams who go out into the community, find these severely malnourished children, they're brought and we either provide them with uh, a supply of this uh, peanut paste you may have seen in packets. It's called plum peanut paste. It's therapeutic and, and the, the family actually go home and the children eat this and they, they make a recovery. If they're really sick, we take them into to hospital wards and make sure they also have their medical supplies as well. And if they come into our program, they are more than likely to make uh, an excellent recovery and the prognosis is very good. And of course, all this then affects um, the children's schooling, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is one of the most worrying aspects that um, we have seen thousands of children who have been forced to drop out of school. Now, this is for various reasons. And one of, one of the most important is that we've got a huge migration of people in the country. This drought has continued now uh, for two or three rainy seasons. People have no food left. They have no water, their animals have died and they're on the move. So we've got 620,000 people who have left their homes. Most of them have moved into these very basic settlements. So of course, when they leave their homes, 
the children all have to drop out of school. We've also seen children, even if they haven't had to move from their home, their parents want them to go further afield to desperately try and find some water. They may be called in to try and find some work to look after animals. So for all these reasons, children are dropping out of school. And then when you you don't get many children in a school or maybe the teacher goes, then the schools have to close. So this is a big problem. And of course, once children have dropped out of school, they've become behind, it becomes much more difficult to get them back into school later. Now let us in on, on some of the operations that you have there in Somalia and where you start. What are some of your, your, your priorities as you provide aid? We set up 330 new nutrition centers around the country to make sure that we can cope with this huge demand. Uh, We're providing clean, safe water. At the moment, we're mostly providing it through trucks of water, bringing them into the rural areas, into the IDP camps, giving everybody seven and a half liters of water a day to make sure that they have good water, they're not drinking contaminated water, because, of course, contaminated water leads to outbreaks of diseases such as uh, diarrhea and cholera, which are very threatening to, to malnourished children. We're also making sure the children are getting vaccinated. Um, measles has been a big outbreak, so we've been vaccinating children against measles and even against cholera for the first time we've had a, a cholera vaccine. Uh, we're also providing a lot of all the other health services Um, in various health posts and health centers around the country. Um, We're bringing safe drinking water into schools. We're setting up temporary learning spaces at those IDP camps. We're making sure the children who come there try and get some kind of uh, education. And we're also um, supporting 64 cholera treatment centers because we have had a huge outbreak of acute watery diarrhea and cholera. Acute watery diarrhea has very similar symptoms to cholera and is equally life-threatening. That was Susanna Price, Chief of Communication at the United Nations Children's Fund, speaking to Khumutzomo Pulane. Many of the African continent's economies are expanding, but that's not always leading to more jobs. It's a big focus for discussion at this year's World Economic Forum in the South African port city of Durban. The aim has been to convince African leaders to adapt their policies to be more inclusive so more people benefit from economic growth. From Durban, the BBC's Matthew Davies reports. In 2011, famine in Somalia claimed the lives of 260,000 people. For those familiar with South African soccer games, it's a well-known noise. The Vuvuzela, not plastic this time but metal, and blown by a trio clad in traditional Zulu dress. But at this year's World Economic Forum on Africa in Durban, a loud retort indicated sessions were about to begin. At the big WEF meeting in Davos in Switzerland, they use a cowbell. But the real noise around the WEF was to do with inclusivity. The main theme was changing the way the continent's leaders approach their development policies so that everyone benefits from economic growth. Several African countries will enjoy GDP growth in the high single digits this year, but many will still struggle with unemployment rates of 30% and above. So the thinking at WEF is less obsession with GDP growth, more focus on getting those outside the formal economy into it. Winnie Bayanyema is the executive director of Oxfam. We know now for sure that 
the biggest break to growth here in Africa is poverty and extreme inequality. Four out of the five most unequal countries in the world are African. So it's not rocket science. Africa has been, in the last 15 years, achieving good growth figures because of the boom in commodities. But it's also the region which has been slowest at reducing poverty. But what would an inclusive economy look like? And Gihuku Shongwe is the founder of Afro's Games, a technology educational enterprise. She's also the United Nations Women's Representative for Southern Africa. Well, an inclusive economy is one where those who we think as living on the margins are actually not on the margins. They are the main part of the economy. So in many of our African economies, 60% of women are in the informal economy. Over 60% of young people are unemployed and not active in the economy. So what we think of margins are not margins, really. This is the core of our economy. So really the structure of our our economy is exclusive. It's exclusive for those who can find formal employment. And that is a really, really small majority of of our society. And with a restive young population, African leaders are being warned that they ignore calls for more economic inclusivity at their peril. Elsie Kanza is the head of regional strategies for Africa at the World Economic Forum. Youth are getting more and more impatient. We're a continent with over 70% of the population below the age of 30. It's very easy to become unstable, and that doesn't work for anyone. It doesn't work for political leaders. It doesn't work for business. So I'd say it's very much in self-interest that's driving this urge to say we need to do things differently. The building blocks towards inclusive economies are numerous. Improvements to infrastructures, education, health and so on. Africa's leaders only have to look north and remember the Arab Spring to see what can happen when vast swathes of populations are left out of economies and political processes. And Africa's youths are blowing their own trumpets. If leaders remain deaf to this, an African Spring is certainly a possibility. And that report from the BBC's Matthew Davis in Durban. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the Somali government has arrested two soldiers in connection with the killing of a government minister in a suspected case of mistaken identity. South Africa's presidency is to release a statement after studying the ruling of the High Court giving President Jacob Zuma five days in which to furnish the opposition DA with documents containing the reasons for his decision to fire Praveen Gordon and other cabinet ministers. And the South Sudanese government have been, heard, have been urged to halt any further offensives towards the town of Abarok, where more than 35,000 people have sought refuge in recent weeks due to fighting. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. 20 million people are at risk of starving to death for the first time in 
living memory. Famine has simultaneously gripped three countries on the continent, Somalia, South Sudan and Nigeria, and Yemen in the Middle East. The looming humanitarian crisis is part of the discussions taking place at the World Economic Forum on Africa in Durban. Non-profit and civil society organizations have called for greater political will on the part of Africa's leaders in increasing investments in agriculture, ending conflicts which exacerbate the effects of drought. Our senior political reporter, Busi Chimombe, reports. In 2011, famine in Somalia claimed the lives of 260,000 people, half of them children. This time things are expected to be far worse. Winnie Bayanima is the director of Oxfam International. In South Sudan, famine has already been declared. 100,000 people are in famine conditions. Children are dying. Every day, five children are dying of starvation. And in uh, northern Nigeria, northeast Nigeria, 47,000 people are living in famine-like conditions. So the situation is dire. It's been driven by drought in some of these countries, particularly in uh, Somalia and Nigeria. There have been droughts for several years, but it's been exacerbated by conflict. An estimated $4.4 billion is required for humanitarian aid for the four countries, with only 26% of that having been delivered so far. President of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, Gilbert Hungbo, says the current crisis was both predicted and preventable. Always tend to react swiftly when it's a humanitarian than the long-term investment. So what is important is when we're dealing with the humanitarian dimension, we start right away looking at the medium and long-term solution. That's where the, the, the nexus between the humanitarian and the development going through the early recovery is going to be crucial. Hongpo says medium and long-term interventions are required to mitigate the effects of future droughts and climate change. When it comes down to predicting the weather conditions and making sure that uh, we have that not only on the, in one part of the country but across the countries, it's going to be important for us to be able to predict much more and much uh, um, faster. One thing is for us to, in, to reinvest on the smallholders in terms of going back to the production. This investment has to go all over the, the value chains. Uh, drought resistant seed, you have to look at the irrigation, you have to look at the access to the market, and the value addition, addition chain is going to be important. Bayanima, however, says there is no lack of policies by African governments in terms of the agricultural sector, with a slew of agreements having been signed. Follow through, however, has been a problem. Our leaders are not slow to sign documents, but they are not quick to put them into implementation. In fact, they never do. So they have a Maputo agreement they made in 2003 that they are going to invest 15% of their budgets in agriculture. 2003. Today is 2017. So it's 14 years later. Only eight countries have reached that budget target. The rest have not implemented. Rather than wait on government, small-scale farmers in some countries have taken their own initiative to ensure food security. The National Smallholder Farmers Association of Malawi is one such example, with a membership of over 160,000 members from 52 associations. 
Daibon Chibonga of NASFAM says forming partnerships has assisted farmers in that country become more resilient against the droughts and floods that have occurred in recent years. We are treating farming as business, using borrowed money from the banks and so on to do input and output marketing. But over and beyond that, we are also doing development because to us doing development makes good business sense. You need to address the supply side constraints and you can't do that with commercial money. You need to use development money so the donors come in. So it's so important to have partnerships that are working. The good news story, however, is not that of South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria and Yemen, where millions wait in hope that help will come soon. In the conflict-ridden countries, that hope may just be in vain. And that report by our senior political reporter Busi Chimombe at the ICC Centre in Durban. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has five working days to furnish opposition party the Democratic Alliance with documents containing the records and reasons for his decision to fire former Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. Gordon and his deputy Mkabisi Jonas were fired together with four other ministers in March this year. The decision led to South Africa's sovereign credit rating being downgraded to junk status by ratings agencies Standard & Poor's. Fanol Schumer compiled this report. And said clearly even that statement does tell the applicant and the president is under no obligation to furnish the applicant with any record. It doesn't say the reasons, that you are not entitled to reasons. So the applicant cannot come before your lordship and ask that an order compelling the president to furnish reasons. State advocate Ishmael Seminya arguing that the president is under no obligation to furnish the applicant with the said documents for his decision to fire former finance minister Pravin Godan. However, his argument did not hold any autumn as the court ruled in favor of the DA. Judge Bashir Velim gave the president less than a week to comply with the court order. The first respondent is to dispatch to the applicant's attorneys within five court days of the date of this order the record of all documents and electronic records, including correspondence, contracts, memoranda, advices, recommendations, evaluations, and reports that relate to the making of the decision which are sought to be reviewed and set aside. With that being the business of this court, the court is adjourned. The ruling by the High Court in Pretoria follows the DA's agent application seeking to understand the legality and irrationality of the decision by the president to fire Gordon. The DA has welcomed the ruling. DA's James Selfs explains. Well, we're obviously delighted at the outcome. I think it takes us a great deal further because what the judge did was to order that both uh, the record and the reasons be provided um, and that will uh, enable us to judge whether or not the decision to drop Mr. Pravin from uh, uh, Borden from the cabinet was a rational decision or, or whether it wasn't. And if it was an irrational decision, we wanted to clear an illegal and unconstitutional decision. The matter doesn't end here. Self says they will file an application for a review of the president's controversial decision soon. Once we have the reasons, we will supplement our affidavit in the main review application and we will proceed with all haste to uh, get that application going. As I said, we 
are trying to get that application uh, before court before the end of June uh, because I think it is very crucial from the point of view of the, the final ratings agency that still has to uh, give its judgment on South Africa. The court has further ordered that the president should carry the legal costs on his own. Fanuel Schumer in Pretorium. The validity of the Hawks' evidence against Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso came under scrutiny on the second day of his bail application in the Port Elizabeth Magistrates Court in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. Omotoso is facing 22 charges of human trafficking and contravention of the Sexual Offences Act with young girls who were allegedly members of his church. His Defence has questioned the validity of the Hawks' evidence. This is after Hawks argued that he was a flight risk. His lawyer says he has given them his address, but the Hawks have failed to locate the houses. The defence argued that he has not booked any international flights since January, although the Hawks claimed he knew he was being investigated. Mtabisi Gina reports. Pastor Omotoso kept smiling and shaking his hand while his defense team questioned investigative officer Peter Plakis. In some instances, he kept smiling while looking at his wife who was sitting two benches away from him. His defense, led by advocate Alfonso Hetting, raised questions about the amendment charge sheet in which Omotoso is facing 22 charges of contravening the Sexual Offenses Act. He questioned why rape was not listed in the charges if there was penetration involved. Plakis replied they work in teams and he was not the one compiling the charge sheet. It also emerged in court that Omotoso's lawyers arranged for the meeting in Port Elizabeth so that he could be interviewed by the Hawks, but they arrested him in a dramatic fashion when he landed at the airport. On the day of the arrest, he had booked a return ticket. Interviews of the alleged victims conducted by SABC Current Affairs Program Special Assignment and Cutting Edge prior to Omotoso's arrest also took center stage. The defense argued that interviews conducted by the current affairs show could influence other girls to tell similar stories about Omotosom as more girls laid charges after the program. The state will submit its reply affidavit on Friday. In Port Elizabeth. It's 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, India on Thursday tested a ballistic missile with a strike range of 2,000 kilometers amid new tensions with Pakistan following the beheading of two of its soldiers in disputed Kashmir. Islamabad denied the charge but India's army said it will avenge the unprovoked killings at a place and time of its choosing. Ranasen has more. India also booted out 47 visiting Pakistani children and denied visa to a wrestling delegation while the launch of the Agni-2 missile seems to be a reflection of its anger over the May 1st beheading along the line of control or LOC, the de facto border that divides troubled Kashmir. Diplomatic hostilities boiled over as India's foreign ministry spokesman Gopal Bagle in a statement squarely held Pakistan responsible for what he called barbaric behavior. Foreign Secretary conveyed uh, India 
India's outrage, the killing and the barbaric act of mutilation of the bodies of two Indian soldiers by Pakistan army personnel. It was conveyed that the government considers it a strong act of provocation and in contravention to all norms of civilized conduct. It is significant that the attack was preceded by a covering fire from Pakistani posts and the trail of blood clearly shows that the killers returned across the line of control. This answers the part about the evidence. But Pakistan demanded actionable evidence. India's ruling BJP party spokesman Narsimha Rao conceded the government in Delhi had no choice but to go through the motions. We are not expecting Pakistan to accept it. On the contrary, they have already denied it even without perusing information that has been made available to them. This is part of uh, the drill that you have to go through. When you want to expose Pakistan, you have to present evidence that is available at your command and so that Pakistan cannot simply get away with uh, straight face denials. But this is a diplomatic routine and a drill that you have to go through. Frequent military skirmishes have buried hopes of tranquility in Kashmir. The previous Congress government spokeswoman Shama Mohammed said the BJP's hardline policy on Pakistan was nothing but a diplomatic disaster. When we were there, we had a policy. There was engagement, there was diplomacy, there was talks, there was a direction. We have had in the last three years 1,343 line of control skirmishes. When we were it was not that much you know it was just 300 when you don't have a policy how do you sort this thing out you mean continuous deaths continuous mutilation 200 jawans died another problem is kashmir this is all intermingled together indian army chief bipin rawat has other worries the snow in the himalayas is melting opening up mountain passes for cross-border militants to sneak in and attack his soldiers guarding the border often with the help of pakistani forces just to make sure that the situation is brought under control these operations are carried out, they are going to attempt infiltration, the snows are melting, the summer months have started. So like each year, infiltration will commence and we are taking measures. We have beefed up our uh, counter-infiltration posture to take care of the situation. Neither of the two countries has spelt out their future course, but actions on the ground and the rhetoric used are clear enough signs that security in South Asia could be at risk. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Good morning. My name is Tabi Solohoko. The World Economic Forum on Africa comes to an end on South Africa's coastal city of Durban this Friday with a call to include young people in the mainstream economy and close the gap between the rich and the poor. The theme of the three-day forum is inclusive growth, responsive and responsible leadership. At least 10 African leaders and hundreds of business leaders from across the continent have been attending the WEF. South African President Jacob Zuma has an impassioned plea to Africa and the world to pay attention to the needs of the youth. The youth have been calling for leaders to address issues of exclusion, inequality, poverty and unemployment. They are an important stakeholder because Africa is a youthful continent, which means we are a continent that has a very bright future if We invest correctly in our young people. Importantly, as leaders, we have not addressed adequately how we are going to close the gap between the rich and the poor and achieve meaningful, inclusive growth. 
Nigeria's central bank has lifted a ban on currency allocations for importers bringing in goods worth up to 20,000 US dollars per quarter. The bank in 2015 placed a restriction on 41 items for which importers could no longer get dollars, including rice, toothpicks, as well as others. Aimed at conserving its foreign reserves, the move curbed access to dollars for importers bringing in a wide range of goods, and it helped fuel the currency of the black market. The French banking giant, Societe Generale, has agreed to pay 1.1 billion US dollars to settle a legal dispute with the Libyan Investment Authority, Libya's sovereign wealth fund. The dispute concerned a handful of trades which the authority had claimed to form part of a corrupt scheme involving associates of the family of the country's former leader, Muammar Gaddafi. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. This deal settles a long-running dispute between the Libyan Investment Authority and Societe Generale. The two had been due to confront one another this week at the High Court in London. The case brought by the LIA focused on five trades executed on its behalf by the bank between 2007 and 2009 when Colonel Gaddafi was the Libyan leader. FNB Namibia has warned members of the public about the latest scam in which fraudsters deposit large amounts of money into people's accounts using stolen checks which are later dishonored by the bank or reversed. The fraudsters then call the account holder pretending to be officials from the revenue PEP stores, Telecom Namibia, Nam Power, Nam Water or some municipal departments are claiming that an incorrect payment has been made into the account. The amount will appear in the customer's account as unclear and the fraudsters using a forged official letter containing the bank details will ask uh, the customer to refund the amount. The US dollar trades at 13.51 in South Africa, 10.36 in Botswana, 9.25 in Zambia, 7.7 to the British pound, 9.1 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,227, platinum $902 an ounce, brand crude $47.52 a barrel. My name is Tabiso Lohoko. Baxter, Baxter, Baxter. Running with Baxter. Baxter throughout. <laughs> we have to inform the continent. They should know now that uh, we have a coach. They, they should well, be afraid. An official, unofficial coach. Yes. But now. An official, unofficial coach. The fire is burning. You know, we saw the smoke. Now the fire is like all no, over. But we're still waiting for Danny Jordan to come back and, and, and give his endorsement and confirm it. I don't think there's anyone who's going to uh, extinguish the fire. Even if Danny Jordan would come in, and I'm not going to hold my breath until he does it. I know he is. He okay. is the coach. All right. Well, speculation, speculation. He's been announced officially, unofficially. Let's yeah, wait well, and see. We have to take it. It's from the Safa Search Committee member Farouk Khan. Was he speaking? He, was he mandated to speak he was on not behalf mandated. of Safa? He was not mandated, but. Because he was part and parcel of the committee, he spoke. I think he's, he, are those people, Bofaru Khan will, will call them the reliable source. Yeah, okay. It's very tricky. Hmm. We've seen this before and it's backfired before. So let's not hold our breath. Give us an update.
our sports update, we continue with the South African Football Association story that uh, Stuart Baxter's good track record has been cited as a major factor that influenced the SAFA to appoint him as the new Bafana Bafana coach. SAFA's search committee, Farouk Khan, who was part of the process to find a replacement for Sheikh Mashawa, says in his previous stint, Bafana Bafana, Baxter's team qualified for the Africa Cup of Nations tournament but failed to qualify for the 2006 FIFA World Cup in Germany. And Khan says Baxter's good knowledge of South Africa's football was also a plus for him. I think Stewart's uh, record speaks for itself, both at club level. I think when he was involved with uh, Bafana, he didn't have a bad run. Unfortunately, uh, for some reason, uh, things didn't work out, he didn't qualify. And uh, for the World Cup, I think it was, If I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he qualified for the FCON. So yeah, those are things that we took into account that Stewart's also his, his, local, his knowledge of local football uh, was, was, was very important to us. Baxter met most of the criteria, but his biggest drawback in his lack of coaching experience in African con- competitions. Khan says Baxter has the potential to deliver. There were some candidates that had a lot of experience, that had a fantastic track record, but they struggled in other areas of uh, local knowledge, uh, knowing what local footballers were about, etc. So you've got to balance the equation at times and say, okay, if somebody's not good in all 11, is it imperative that he hasn't got experience in uh, African football or extensive experience? Would that hold against him? And we just felt, look, with the options we had, that, that Stewart would be able to overcome that uh, challenge. The introduction of the club licensing by the Confederations of African Football CAF to clubs across the continent is having a positive effect. More African clubs are embracing the licensing programs to inculcate a sense of professionalism. Now, we're hearing from CAF Communications Executive Junior Binyam. And with the club licensing, having more teams on board involved in CAF uh, inter-club competition, and as you know, we have entered a new commercial cycle starting 2017. That means we are generating more revenues from our tournament, so we can have more teams to redistribute revenues. Meanwhile, in a bid to discourage clubs from withdrawing from the competitions, that is the Confederations Cup and the Champions League and the Confederations Cup, Binyam says the substantial increase across the board for all CAF tournaments is meant to lure clubs into participating. But the first thing is that CAF has always been looking for commercial partners to make sure that those who are sustaining the game, those are clubs, players, are having what they deserve. So, concluding a new contract with uh, the agency Lagarde Sport with a minimum guarantee of $1 billion over 12 years has enabled, has enabled us uh, to, to make sure that the price money of most of our tournaments have been reu- reduced. For the Champions League, for instance, previously the winner was having $1.5 million. Now the winner will have $2.5 million. A team finishing fourth in the group phase will receive $550,000. So it's, uh, in most of our tournaments, we have had increase that uh, are quite substantial, up to 80%. In certain cases, you have the, the price money has been multiplied by three. Usain Bolt's coaches have joked that he will develop a belly within two years of retirement. My managers, uh, they give me two years before I, I get a belly, so <laughs> I can't let that happen. That's a sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raza and China, the Sawa, at least 45 people killed in the Central African Republic, says Human Rights Watch. And job creation, a big focus at the World Economic Forum, Africa 2017. That wraps up Africa, Raza and China for this hour and for today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bumga, technical producer and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.changafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Tubok by Malaika. <laughs>